uh, thank you for these opportunities, these discussions that um, Steve have had with uh, uh, Dave at the gas station. We pray that you would please, um, well, Dave is going through a, a very difficult time right now and, and experiencing loss um, to um, a horrific uh, event, oh Lord God, and, and we just pray that that would give further doors and opportunities for Steve to be able to speak to Dave uh, and pray that you would bring him comfort in Christ um, and uh, pray and, uh, pray that you would give just Steve wisdom and opportunity there. Lord, we pray for, thank you for Tony and for the couple opportunities he had to speak and even to relate his uh, things like marriage um, to the foundation of Christ. And indeed, that is true that every marriage should be a model of Christ in the church, and um, uh, Lord, we just pray for our marriages in this church, Lord God, that you would sustain them, that you would grow them, that you would make them firm and solid, so that there can be that testimony to a world where marriage is broken, it is trivialized, um, and so we just pray for grace. We pray for grace as we continue to um, define prayer and understand what you mean by prayer this morning in the, the scriptures. We pray for uh, understanding, and we pray that you would help us to live this out and become a praying people in a praying church. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so uh, last week what we did is we started our discussion of prayer um, really by uh, defining prayer, starting to define prayer. And the way we've kind of approached that is first by looking at the first prayer recorded in the scriptures, which would be Genesis 4.26. Uh, which led us to understand that not all communication with God is considered prayer. So the conversations that Adam and Eve had with God, the conversation that Cain had with God, um, those aren't considered prayer. Um, and prayer was, calling on the name of the Lord was begun um, with the birth of Enosh. And we kind of said that it seems like um, prayer is a, um, is a consequence of the fall. Um, if you were to think about in the garden, face-to-face -face communication, uh, because of the fall, there's distance. Uh, there's, there's distance from God. Uh, there's a longing for God's presence, um, and there's a longing for God to do, uh, meet his promises. That's probably why uh, prayer starts in Genesis 4.26. God has made promises. There's this anticipation of the offspring of the woman who's supposed to come and write, all the, um, write everything. Um, and so it seems like uh, there's that, that um, desire, not only for God's presence, but desire to meet his promises. And then I, uh, we kind of started summarizing, um, uh, just looking at the most explicit terminology for prayer, uh, some of the key characteristics that go along with it. Uh, so the, the primary, um, at least Old Testament word um, for prayer indicates intercession. So you can intercede on someone else's behalf or someone else. That, that itself speaks to trouble when you're interceding. There's some sort of problem, uh, and that pro we understand that because of the, again, it just highlights that reality that because of the fall, that's why we have prayer. Um, there's distance from God. There's, there's, um, we want to be near God, but we can't because of sin. We also talked about the, the association of uh, prayer language with the temple, um, and that is at two, two points. Every single earthly temple is just a model of the heavenly temple, and we're Numerous passages, both Old Testament and New Testament, that indicate when God, when God hears prayer, it is in heaven. It is in his heavenly temple, and it's likened to incense. So if you think of that 
incense altar um, that is before the Holy of Holies in, in the tabernacle or the temple um, in the Old Testament, uh, that incense at one level is supposed to represent prayer. And they would sacrifice, the priest would sacrifice um, once in the morning, once in the evening, and they would offer incense, and those were the times of prayer. You can see that in Luke, when Zechariah is doing his duty as a priest. Uh, it's very explicit that that's during the time of prayer. Um, and the reason that a prayer is often associated with the temple is what the temple is. It's a sort of portal uh, between heaven and earth, right? If you want to go to the place where the most concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth, you go to the temple. And so if your prayer is about trying to speak with God and to be heard, uh, you want to be near his uh, presence. Now, I will. I said this last week, but just to back it up with some scripture, um, it, we understand that though um, prayer is often desirable to be directed towards the temple, at least in the Old Testament, uh, Jesus is clear that it's, a, it's something that you do on your own as well. So Matthew 6, uh, 5 through 6, we get a lot of instruction on prayer in the um, Sermon on the Mount, uh, a section of it anyway. Uh, and so someone just go ahead and read Matthew 6, 5 through 6. So here, um, I don't think Jesus is intending to uh, discount public prayer in general, nor to, like, it's wrong to go to the temple, because that still happened after this. But what is he emphasizing? He's emphasizing why are you doing what you're doing, right? Either, no matter where you pray, the goal is um, being heard by the Father, uh, communing with the Father. And so he says, yeah, you can do that. Um, you should do that uh, in, in your closet, um, uh, you know, in a secret place. Because why? You want to be, be with your father in secret. So there is this reality that um, there is uh, in the temple uh, a, a, a special manifestation of God's presence, and it's right and good to pray that direction. And yet at the same time, it's not for public approval or praise. It is for uh, communing with the father. And so it's something you can do with and secret as well. So I just want to make sure that we were clear on that. Any questions up to this point? We're going to do a little bit more work on defining prayer this morning, but anything in what we've said so far? Okay, so uh, let's keep working at this. Uh, I want to take you to Isaiah 44. This is maybe kind of a strange passage to go to to talk about prayer, but I do think it is helpful, and it's going to illustrate um, some of the other uh, places we're going. In Isaiah, especially in chapters, mm, uh, past chapter 40, um, and, you know, really up to and including kind of that section I, uh, 40 through 55, there's this contest, so to speak, between God and the idols of the world. And really what God is doing is he's showing the idols of the world are nothing. 
But he keeps coming back to this refrain in, in these chapters of, here, let me show you uh, that I am the true and living God and that every other idol is ridiculous and worthless. So that's kind of the context of what we're going to read in Isaiah 44. It, um, I want to focus in on verse 17, but just to give you a little context, what happens is um, God's portraying this, this scenario where some guy goes out and he chops some wood, and then part of that, um, you know, he fells a tree, it's a nice piece of wood, and so with half of it, he makes an idol. He does all this work, and he fashions it. And the other half of it, he burns in the, the, the fireplace uh, to cook his food. And so God's just kind of using that to show the absurdity of idolatry. Um, but in the midst of that, he's just kind of describing um, this approach to a, uh, a God in general. And we see this, and it touches on prayer in Isaiah 44, 17. So someone go ahead and read um, 44, 17. Okay, so this is kind of a generic situation, yes? This is like generic idol god worship. Let's put it that way. This is kind of a generic thing, and God's just describing it generically. Well, where do we see, what, what do we see connected with prayer in this situation? Yeah, and what's he doing? Okay, and what's it associated with? So he's praying to it. So worship, okay? So this is, an, uh, we, I think we mentioned this last week, but here we see it explicitly. So this is kind of a generic description of how you worship a God in general, right? Now, this is a false God, but God is just describing, here, here's, here's what generic worship looks like. Um, and so here you've got this um, person, he's falling down before his God, he's worshiping, he's um, ascribing value to it. But then he's praying. Part of that worship is prayer, right? He's praying to this God. So we, we affirm that prayer is a form of worship. We understand that. Um, again, the speech here is pretty generic. So even though it's to a false God, God's just describing here's how worship works in general. Now he's doing it to the wrong thing, the wrong, it's not a God, but he's claiming it's a God, but this is how it works. So, um, you know, prayer is a form of worship. What is his prayer? Deliver me, well, is that all it says? Deliver me, for you are my God. Now, that's a generic prayer, right? Because God's just describing, here's, here's, here's general worship. It's wrong worship, but here's what worship looks like in general. So here's a generic prayer. What does a generic prayer sound like? Uh, well, it has a request. Deliver me. And we understand that, right? Because when we think about prayer, we normally think about a request, uh, but is that all that this prayer has in it? No, Genevieve, you're shaking your head. Yeah, good. Yeah, you are my God. So what does that mean? When, when the worshiper, the prayer, is saying, you are my God, what is that statement, what's he saying? Oh, okay, so I've got, heard multiple people. So Susan first. Okay, yeah, and we could say that's because there's a relationship or a perceived relationship in this case between this fellow 
and is God. There's a perceived relationship, and so based on that relationship, you should act. Uh, Patricia, were you saying something? Yeah, expectation. So you're my God. Uh, you have this, I have this relationship with you, um, and there's an expectation there. Uh, I think, was there someone else? Bruce? Yes, it's a deity, right? Uh, it's, it's, div- um, it's divine, um, has power. Yes, he thinks it. Again, this is false worship, and yet the way God is talking about it, he's talking about it as generic worship. And he's saying, yeah, it's directed towards the wrong thing, but here's what worship looks like in general. So that's how we're, why I'm going here. It's kind of an, um, I'm going here not because this is right prayer or right worship, but because it gives us a general description of what uh, the connection between worship and prayer and what prayer is like. And so I would argue that what, even based on the rest of the prayers that we see in Scripture, which is where we're going next, you see this pattern. It's not only a request. When we think about prayer, we think of often requests, right? I mean, we, that's just that's kind of bound up even in our English word with prayer. That's just what we think about. And that's generally true. And yet, it's not only I have a request, there is an acclamation. There is an acknowledgement of a relationship. There is dependence or expectation. Um, and so you see both of those elements here. The call in prayer is some form, generally, of deliver me, save me. Why? Because this is who you are and because I have a relationship with you. And even with the prayers with God in Scripture, like we're going to see, that pattern holds true. Uh, prayer typically involves a request of God, but not always. Not always. Sometimes, it's, if you were to look, and we will, we'll look at some of the prayers of Scripture here. Uh, sometimes, prayer is weighted more towards the request side of things, deliver me. And sometimes, it's weighted fully on the, you are my God. And there's even no request. Let's go ahead and see one of these biblical prayers. Go to... So we would all acknowledge and agree that prayer in general has a request to it. Let me show you a prayer that's called a prayer in Scripture that has no requests. Uh, Go to 1 Samuel 2. What happens at the beginning of 1 Samuel? Give us a little context. Hannah wants a baby. She can't have a baby. Um, uh, uh, She's in a polygamous marriage, and her rival... Um, the, the rival wife has a lot of kids, and so what does Hannah do? What, what does Hannah do? She prays. Where? Yeah, in the temple, or in this case, the tabernacle at Shiloh. Exactly. So she goes to the house of God. She prays. What happens? Yeah, she's accused of being drunk, but like in the long run, Eli kind of figures it out. He he, um, he's, he's, not a, he's not a good priest, but he, he figures out, okay, she's not drunk, she's actually praying, and it's okay. Um, and then what happens? Yeah, God gives, God answers her prayer, and what? Eden? Dedicates the baby. So she, God, you know, she had kind of promised that. She said, if you give me a kid, I'll dedicate him to you. And so she's made a vow. And she fulfills that, God gives her a baby, and she fulfills that vow. Now, after that, in chapter 1, all of that happens in chapter 1, we get um, the first half of chapter 2, which is 
uh, Hannah's prayer, uh, it's a subsequent prayer to all of this. It's called a prayer explicitly to one, and Hannah prayed and said. Um, and this is one of the uh, key prayers that frames the whole of First and Second Samuel. Uh, we won't go into it, but just so you know, um, the themes that are brought up in Hannah's prayer are mirrored by the time we get to the end of 2 Samuel with David's prayers. Um, they're kind of like bookends. But in any case, our purposes, we're looking at Hannah's prayer. Let's just go ahead and read it. Uh, someone uh, read, I uh, already read the heading. Uh, someone go ahead and read Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. So what is this, what do you see in this prayer? A lot of praise. In fact, arguably no requests. Like zero requests. Now, it's part of Hannah's relationship with God, right? She made requests before, and this is kind of the answer to that. But nonetheless, this is a self-contained prayer that is only declaration of who God is. So if you think back to that Isaiah 44, 17 schematic, this is like, purely on the side of um, you are my God and here's what you've done, right? Uh, and so valid prayer doesn't necessarily even have to have a request. Uh, we see here, right, the connection between prayer and worship. This is just acclamation and lifting up of who God is, acknowledging what he has done uh, and acknowledging who he is. Uh, and in terms of the book, you can kind of see there in the last uh, verse, in verse 10, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Uh, Israel didn't have a king at this point, uh, but it kind of sets up for the rest of um, the book uh, or the books of Samuel um, to, to, to show how that king happens. But that's to illustrate that when we talk about prayer, in general, it follows that schematic. There's some sort, in general, there's a request, but not always. Sometimes it's just pure acclamation and praise of who God is. Any thoughts on that? How does that, yeah, Eden? Yeah, exactly. So, 
um, uh, Mary's Magnificat is intentionally uh, tying in with the themes of Hannah. And there's, there's a biblical theological connection between um, Hannah and, um, and Mary. Um, and it makes sense. Um, kind of setting up for, even in broad terms, right, if you think about Hannah setting up for the king, um, and then what we've got with Mary is setting up for the, the ultimate king. Obviously, Samuel wasn't a king, but um, anyway, the point I'm drawing out here is that um, prayer doesn't have to be have a request. It can be pure praise uh, and should be. And in fact, uh, when you, you walk a lot of the prayers in Scripture, uh, if you were to, on average, give a, a, a balance to, well, how much is praise, how much is, for you are my God, and how much is request, uh, I would say probably the balance goes towards praise. Um, I mean, that's a guess. I haven't actually calculated it. Uh, but that's what we see in a few of these key prayers. Um, Let's go, to, let's go to 2 Samuel, since we're in Samuel already, and we kind of see the same reality. So 2 Samuel 7, one of the most important chapters in your Bible, because it, it, it's the giving of the Davidic covenant, the covenant to rule them all. And God promises in the Davidic covenant, in the first part of the chapter, um, that... Uh, you know, David wants to build God a house. He wants to build him a temple. But God's going to build David a house. He's going to build him a dynasty. Uh, a dynasty that's going to last forever with one of his sons on the throne ruling over Israel. And, and we find out in other passages in Scripture uh, over the, the nations of the world even. And so David then goes to the temple. So there we see that theme again of going to the temple. Um, and... Uh, he praises, um, he praises um, God for what he has done. Uh, so l- let me go ahead and read this. I'll start in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before Yahweh and said, Who am I, O Lord Yahweh? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord Yahweh. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord Yahweh. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord Yahweh, because of your promise. And according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord, uh, O Yahweh God. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out your, uh, before your people? whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Yahweh, became their God. And now, O Lord, uh, Yahweh God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, Yahweh of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord Yahweh, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. And therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord Yahweh, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So, what is David doing in this prayer? 
He's worshiping, right? He's giving thanks based on what? Yeah, so he's rehearsing all the things that God has done. So it's not only like God's character, but it's also here's what you did, right? Here's the things that you did that we can look back on and say that's amazing. And even more specifically, what is David doing? What's he looking at? Not only what God did, but what he will do, God's promises, right? So based on God's promises, uh, David is making this prayer, this praise. He believes that this is going to happen. Um, and then uh, what is, is there a request in this prayer? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the request is, this is what you've said. Here's what you've also done, other stuff. Here's what you've said to me. Um, make it happen. So uh, a lot of, uh, I think we said this last week, a lot of the core of biblical prayer is calling on God to do what he's promised to do, right? So we start with, here's what God has said, and we want that to happen. That's our aim. That's our joy. That's our um, desire. And so based on that, we respond. We believe that God's going to do it, and we pray for God to actualize it. And that's a core to what um, prayer is. We, we kind of argued that based on the first prayer in Genesis. We can see it many, many, many times in prayers throughout the scriptures. Uh, but what we see in this case is we see David doing that. And that happens through a lot of the biblical prayers. Here's who you are. Here's what you've done. Based, you are my God. We could say it like that. And then based on that act, fulfill my request. And that request is in line with where God is going um, in the world. Uh, Bruce. Yeah, based on what he said. Yeah, and he, he already acknowledges this isn't just about David getting some blessing, right? Like, bless me, God. It, it's not just, but it's, he realizes, he even says, this is instruction for mankind. What you're doing and giving me an uh, everlasting dynasty, what we call the Davidic covenant, uh, that's big time. It's not just about me. It's about the whole of humanity, so he's praying for that blessing, not only just, yeah, I want some blessing, but for really the blessing of, of mankind. Yeah, yeah, it's his, it's his whole line, right? It's his whole line, um, the, 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 um, the Davidic dynasty is what we would call it. Okay, let's see some more prayers. Um, prayers also involve confession. Go to Ezra. So, pop quiz, when is Ezra written? Rough time period, not dates. Uh, near the end of the Old Testament, um, not in exile, but just after exile. They're coming back, right? So, they're coming back to in waves. They're coming back in waves. Ezra is like, um, if you were to think of there's the wave with Joshua and Zerubbabel, that's wave one. And then you've got the wave with Ezra, that's wave two. And then you've got Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are probably one work originally. And you've got uh, uh, Nehemiah is kind of wave three, although Ezra's still around. Okay? So um, here we've got kind of wave two. Ezra comes in. He's a priest. 
Uh, he's been designated um, by the Persians um, to, to teach Israel, to fulfill his job that God has given him to teach Israel. Um, and he comes back and things are a mess. Um, and he utters a prayer. Like, he's broken. Um, and he's upset because he understands that Israel has mingled uh, with the nations that are around. They're not supposed to do that. And so he's, he's just broken. Um, so we can see that in chapter 9, verse, verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God, the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. What happens at the morning and evening sacrifice? Prayer. And so Ezra's, you know, attaching himself to that. And this is what he says, starting in verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. And I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh, my God. I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown to us by Yahweh our God, to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophet, saying, The land which you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, and their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for the, an inheritance to your children forever." And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would, not you, would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there would be no remnant nor any to escape? O Yahweh, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. Okay, so this is prayer, biblical prayer. What is it like? Yeah, this is, is there any requests? What do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, there's, we could say that, um, I don't, I don't, at least um, my reading, I don't see an explicit request, um, but there's kind of implied requests kind of embedded within it, we could say that. But um, again, if we were to just kind of go by form, uh, this is just pure confession, right? Do you see, um, it's not, there's other elements in there, so there's it's confession. What other elements do you see? Yeah, humbleness. Um, it, does he, is he praise God at all? Yeah, yeah. So again, we kind of see that reality. You are my God. You see, you, you know, that, that uh, again, kind of using that schematic from, from Isaiah 44, 17. Uh, you, you see Ezra acknowledging the relationship, the greatness of God, uh, what God has done that has shown favor and kindness. You've punished us less than we deserve. And then the rest of it is just like, uh, is just being aggrieved. I mean, he used the word appalled at their behavior. Now, is Ezra, let's, let's ask this question. Uh, who's, hmm, who is Ezra interceding for? The covenant people, right? The, the Israel, right? Um, so it's not as if, you know, from the picture and the portrait we understand from Ezra, Ezra's walking faithfully with God. He's doing what he's supposed to do, but even as he is walking faithfully, he lumps himself in with the rest of the covenant people, um, in this case Israel, the old covenant people, and he's saying, we're guilty. <laughs> he lumps himself in, right? And he's confessing sin on behalf, not uh, so much of himself, although he lumps himself in with that in solidarity with the whole community that has sinned. Yeah. Yep. 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 Absolutely. So when we think about prayer and, you know, defining prayer, right? In general, we could think about that schema, deliver me for you are my God. And within that schematic, we can understand that prayer sometimes just involves pure confession and acknowledgement of guilt. There can be applied, implied requests, right? Like, um, like even in this, right, there's just this longing, change us so that we don't do this again. Uh, you have delivered us, deliver us again, but a lot of it is like deliver us from our own guilt. Deliver us from our own waywardness. Deliver us for our own sin. So we can think of, you know, there's pure praise and declaration like Hannah's prayer. Uh, there is, you know, like, like David, he's acknowledging who God is, what he's promised to do. He's calling for that to happen. Here we've got a prayer of pretty much pure confession. Uh, let's go to Psalm, let's go to Psalm 102. Oh, anything else on Ezra before we, we depart, Ezra? Well, and even at this point, I mean, he is, he will in the rest of the book, right? And they're, they're, they see this, they're like appalled too. But at least in the prayer itself, he's just kind of, he's just vomiting, right? He's, in the sense that he's just, he's just spilling his guts on, not just for him personally, but for, on the behalf of his people, we have done wrong. We have sinned against you. You have not punished us according to what we deserve. Um, we have wronged you. Um, and it's just, um, visceral acknowledgement of that. Now, if that's confession, uh, there's another kind of way in, in terms of uh, trouble. Um, 
It's different com than from confession. So you could have some trouble that's caused by your own sin, right? That's what's going on in Ezra. Here's the trouble we're in. Because of our own sin, and let's pour out and confess. Uh, but then here's, here's another one, and we probably won't be able to read the whole of Psalm 102, but we can start in the, the first bit. Uh, you know, we think of the Psalms as music, and they are, but the Psalms are prayers, too. Uh, even when we think about our own um, worship, right, uh, if you were to compare and contrast in your mind, like our prayer prompts, or what we do when we have our prayer prompts, but then what we sing, really uh, our songs are, they should be prayerful, right? Um, because that's what we see in the Psalms as well. Well, here's a particular prayer, and so a prayer song that uh, notice the heading. Remember, the headings are scripture. Now, in the ESV, you've got like the bold italicized heading. That's not scripture. But then like the all caps heading, that's scripture. Uh, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before Yahweh. Uh, someone go ahead and read, um, let's say verses 1 through 11. Okay, um, and you know what? We're gonna we're gonna read a little bit more. Um, someone go ahead and read. Someone else go ahead and read twelve through seventeen. Okay, that should give us enough of the sample of the whole thing. Um, what, what's this? What's going on in this prayer? It's explicitly called prayer. That's why we're going to it. It's explicitly called prayer, but we're kind of highlighting, you know, in all of what we've done, we're highlighting different things that are rightly called prayer, but they're different from each other, right? So what's going on here? Mm-hmm. 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 
Mm, yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 There's, there's a, and even if we were to keep going there, there's, you know, there's individual requests, but then there's a request on the whole community. So there's this kind of back and forth between what's God doing with the individual, but then the bigger picture of what's going on in the community. But you know what you said, Tony, to begin with, right? This is lament. And it's not so much, he never mentions sin. Right in that first part, he never mentions, um, "Here's how I sinned, and that's why things are a mess." This is like uh, life stinks. Yeah, what was uh, you know? Uh, it's it's I'm hurting. Doesn't explain why, if, uh, or or it doesn't at least it doesn't attribute it to sin. This is life in a fallen world, uh, and even amongst the people that God is working among the covenant people, and. He is complaining. He's saying, uh, he's lamenting, right? He is, he is uh, pouring out his guts. Not because he has sinned, but because, um, and, and maybe sin is involved in all of this picture, but he doesn't go there. He's just saying, God, answer me because things are a mess. I'm hurting. <laughs> uh, and so, again, that teaches us something about legitimate biblical prayer, Right? that um, sometimes prayer is um, pouring out your guts before God, that things stink, um, that I'm hurting, uh, I need you to answer me, but here's the key thing with biblical lament. It's not just whining. Uh, you see that turn um, that, that Tony mentioned in verse uh, for 12, 13, you know, um, you know, he start, look at verse 12, but you, O Yahweh, are enthroned forever. You remember through all generations. So this is reverent. This is praising God. And he, there's trust. So lament never did, never gives up on, never, um, uh, it never becomes despairing in the sense that uh, I've lost my faith uh, or my trust in God. But it's honest uh, in pouring out where someone is, and it does so in a worshipful way and a reverent way. Now, uh, when's the last time any of you lamented like that? Yeah, maybe. So maybe some of us have. You know, that's what Genevieve said. It's been years since I've done it, but like, there are periods of life maybe where we've experienced that. But um, it's not something I'm going to say that in general we do or do well in at least what I've observed in American Christianity, right? And something we need to get better at because maybe I'm doing okay, but then I can think of even in this church, people who are hurting, they're suffering, they're not doing well, not because of sin, but um, because of circumstances. And like Ezra, I can go and say, Lord, we're suffering, we're hurting. Here are the people that I know that are, are struggling. Will you, will you, um, 
will you meet their needs? Will you, or even more broadly, right? Um, you know, we can think of the hurts and sufferings in in our world. We can think of, um, if you were to edge into confession, right, we can think of our sinfulness, uh, not only as a nation, but even within the church. Like, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, uh, by and large. So, uh, you know, there's that aspect of confession, too. They kind of blend together a little bit, right? You could lament because of your own sinfulness. So think Psalm 51 with David. Uh, but you could be lamenting, beca- not because of your own sinfulness, but because uh, life is hard right now. Um, yes, Susan. Yeah. I mean, there's a real request, like, take away my suffering. <laughs> take away my pain. <laughs> like, there's real requests there, but again, it's done in the, the, con- um, the context of, uh, Lord, I trust you. I want you to be glorified. So, all right, let's pause there for today. Uh, again, what we're doing in, in just kind of sampling these different prayers, uh, I'm trying to give you a scope of, if, as we think about defining prayer, you can kind of think of that general schematic of Isaiah 44:17: Save me, deliver me, for you are my God. You've got praise and recognition on one side, and then the request. Sometimes you have a request, sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's pure confession, sometimes it's pure praise, sometimes it's pure lament. Um, but there's all these things that are, com- uh, are rightfully called, that Scripture calls prayer. Uh, like I did last week, I want to end with prayer. And Lord willing, we'll, we'll, as we go on in this, we'll, we'll practice more and more together, leave a little bit more time. But what I would like is I want us to pray that God would grow us in praising and thanking God in our prayers, recognizing his promises. And I want to pray that we would be open in lament and confession to God, to God in prayer. I'm going to have two people pray briefly. And again, those, the things you should be praying for, pray that we would grow in praising, thanking God in our prayers, recognizing his promises. Looked at a lot of that today. And then pray that we would be open in lament and confession to God in prayer. So can I have two volunteers, a guy and a gal, um, pray for us? Okay, so Emily's got lament. Um, and then who wants to, a guy who wants to pray for praising and thanking God? All right, side by side, works out great. So uh, Emily, go ahead and you can close us.